Chapters 73 and 74 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 73 Ellen and he got on capitally. All the better, perhaps, because the disparity between them was so great that neither did Ellen want to be elevated, nor did Ernest want to elevate her. He was very fond of her, and very kind to her. They had interests which they could serve in common. They had antecedents, with a good part of which each was familiar. They had each of them excellent tempers, and this was enough. Ellen did not seem jealous at Ernest's preferring to sit the greater part of his time, after the day's work was done, in the first-floor front, where I occasionally visited him. She might have come and sat with him if she had liked, but somehow or other she generally found enough to occupy her down below. She had the tact also to encourage him to go out of an evening whenever he had a mind, without in the least caring that he should take her too and this suited Ernest very well. He was, I should say, much happier in his married life than people generally are. At first it had been very painful to him to meet any of his old friends, as he sometimes accidentally did, but this soon passed. Either they cut him or he cut them. It was not nice being cut for the first time or two, but after that it became rather pleasant than not and when he began to see that he was going ahead, he cared very little what people might say about his antecedents. The ordeal is a painful one, but if a man's moral and intellectual constitution are naturally sound, there is nothing which will give him so much strength of character as having been well cut. It was easy for him to keep his expenditure down, for his tastes were not luxurious. He liked theatres, outings into the country on a Sunday, and tobacco, but he did not care for much else, except writing and music. As for the usual run of concerts, he hated them. He worshipped Handel, he liked Offenbach, and the airs that went about the streets. But he cared nothing between these two extremes. Music, therefore, cost him little. As for theatres, I got him and Ellen as many orders as they liked, so these cost them nothing. The Sunday outings were a small item. For a shilling or two he could get a return ticket to some place far enough out of town to give him a good walk and a thorough change for the day. Ellen went with him the first few times, but she said she found it too much for her. There were a few of her old friends whom she would sometimes like to see, and they and he, she said, would not hit it off perhaps too well, so it would be better for him to go alone. This seemed so sensible, and suited Ernest so exactly, that he readily fell into it, nor did he suspect dangers which were apparent enough to me when I heard how she had treated the matter. I kept silent, however, and for a time all continued to go well. As I have said, one of his chief pleasures was in writing. If a man carries with him a little sketchbook and is continually jotting down sketches, he has the artistic instinct, 
a hundred things may hinder his due development, but the instinct is there. The literary instinct may be known by a man's keeping a small notebook in his waistcoat pocket, into which he jots down anything that strikes him, or any good thing that he hears said, or a reference to any passage which he thinks will come in useful to him. Ernest had such a notebook always with him. Even when he was at Cambridge he had begun the practice, without anyone's having suggested it to him. These notes he copied out from time to time into a book, which, as they accumulated, he was driven into indexing approximately, as he went along. When I found this out, I knew that he had the literary instinct, and when I saw his notes, I began to hope great things of him. For a long time I was disappointed. He was kept back by the nature of the subjects he chose which were generally metaphysical. In vain I tried to get him away from these to matters which had a greater interest for the general public. When I begged him to try his hand at some pretty, graceful little story, which should be full of what people knew and liked best, he would immediately set to work upon a treatise to show the grounds on which all belief rested. "'You are stirring mud,' I said, "'or poking at a sleeping dog.' You are trying to make people resume consciousness about things which, with sensible men, have already passed into the unconscious stage. The men whom you would disturb are in front of you, and not, as you fancy, behind you. It is you who are the lagger, not they. He could not see it. He said he was engaged on an essay upon the famous Quad Semper, Quad Ubique, quad ab omnibus, of St. Vincent's de Larens. This was the more provoking, because he showed himself able to do better things, if he had liked. I was then at work upon my burlesque, the impatient Griselda, and was sometimes at my wit's end for a piece of business or a situation. He gave me many suggestions, all of which were marked by excellent good sense. Nevertheless, I could not prevail with him to put philosophy on one side, and was obliged to leave him to himself. For a long time, as I have said, his choice of subjects continued to be such as I could not approve. He was continually studying scientific and metaphysical writers, in the hope of either finding or making for himself a philosopher's stone in the shape of a system which should go on all fours under all circumstances, instead of being liable to be upset at every touch and turn, as every system yet promulgated has turned out to be. He kept to the pursuit of this will-o'-the-wisp so long as I gave up hope, and set him down as another fly that had been caught, as it were, by a piece of paper, daubed over with some sticky stuff that had not even the merit of being sweet. But to my surprise, he at last declared that he was satisfied and had found what he wanted. I supposed he had only hit upon some new lo here, when to my relief he told me that he had concluded that no system which should go perfectly upon all fours was possible inasmuch as no one could get behind Bishop Berkeley, 
and therefore no absolutely incontrovertible first premise could ever be laid. Having found this, he was just as well pleased as if he had found the most perfect system imaginable. All he wanted, he said, was to know which way it was to be, that is to say, whether a system was possible or not, and if possible, then what the system was to be. Having found out that no system based on an absolute certainty was possible, he was contented. I had only a very vague idea who Bishop Berkeley was, but was thankful to him for having defended us from an incontrovertible first premise. I am afraid I said a few words implying that, after a great deal of trouble, he had arrived at the conclusion which sensible people reach without bothering their brains so much. He said, Yes, but I was not born sensible. A child of ordinary powers learns to walk at a year or two without knowing much about it. Failing ordinary powers, he had better learn laboriously than never learn at all. I am sorry I was not stronger, but to do as I did was my only chance. He looked so meek that I was vexed with myself for having said what I had, more especially when I remembered his bringing up which had doubtless done much to impair his power of taking a common-sense view of things. He continued, I see it all now. The people like Townley are the only ones who know anything that is worth knowing. And like that, of course, I can never be. But to make Townley's possible, there must be hewers of wood and drawers of water men in fact through whom conscious knowledge must pass before it can reach those who can apply it gracefully and instinctively, as the Townleys can. I am a hewer of wood, but if I accept the position frankly and do not set up to be a Townley, it does not matter. He still, therefore, stuck to science instead of turning to literature proper, as I hoped he would have done but he confined himself henceforth to inquiries on specific subjects concerning which an increase of our knowledge, as he said, was possible. Having, in fact, an infinite vexation of spirit, arrived at a conclusion which cut at the roots of all knowledge, he settled contentedly down to the pursuit of knowledge, and has pursued it ever since, in spite of occasional excursions into the regions of literature proper. But this is anticipating, and may perhaps also convey a wrong impression, for from the outset he did occasionally turn his attention to work, which must be more properly called literary than either scientific or metaphysical. Chapter 74 About six months after he had set up his shop, his prosperity had reached its climax. It seemed even then as though he were likely to go ahead no less fast than heretofore, and I doubt not that he would have done so if success or non-success had depended upon himself alone. Unfortunately, he was not the only person to be reckoned with. One morning he had gone out to attend some sales, leaving his wife perfectly well, as usual in good spirits and looking very pretty. When he came back, he found her sitting on a chair in the back parlor, 
with her hair over her face, sobbing and crying as though her heart would break. She said she had been frightened in the morning by a man who had pretended to be a customer and had threatened her unless she gave him some things, and she had had to give them to him in order to save herself from violence. She had been in hysterics ever since the man had gone. This was her story, but her speech was so incoherent that it was not easy to make out what she said. Ernest knew she was with child and thinking this might have something to do with the matter, would have sent for a doctor if Ellen had not begged him not to do so. Anyone who had had experience of drunken people would have seen at a glance what the matter was, but my hero knew nothing about them. Nothing, that is to say, about the drunkenness of the habitual drunkard, which shows itself very differently from that of one who gets drunk only once in a way. The idea that his wife could drink had never even crossed his mind. Indeed, she always made a fuss about the taking more than a very little beer, and never touched spirits. He did not know much more about hysterics than he did about drunkenness, but he had always heard that women who were about to become mothers were liable to be easily upset, and were often rather flighty so he was not greatly surprised, and thought he had settled the matter by registering the discovery that being about to become a father has its troublesome as well as its pleasant side. The great change in Ellen's life, consequent upon her meeting Ernest, and getting married, had for a time actually sobered her by shaking her out of her old ways. Drunkenness is so much a matter of habit, and habit so much a matter of surroundings, that if you completely change the surroundings you will sometimes get rid of the drunkenness altogether. Ellen had intended remaining always sober henceforward, and never having had so long a steady fit before, believed she was now cured. So she perhaps would have been, if she had seen none of her old acquaintances. When, however, her new life was beginning to lose its newness, and when her old acquaintances came to see her, her present surroundings became more like her past, and on this she herself began to get like her past too. At first she only got a little tipsy and struggled against a relapse. But it was no use. She soon lost the heart to fight, and now her object was not to try and keep sober, but to get gin without her husband's finding it out. So the hysterics continued, and she managed to make her husband still think that they were due to her being about to become a mother. The worse her attacks were, the more devoted he became in his attention to her. At last he insisted that a doctor should see her. The doctor, of course, took in the situation at a glance, but said nothing to Ernest, except in such a guarded way that he did not understand the hints that were thrown out to him. He was much too downright and matter-of-fact to be quick at taking hints of this sort. He hoped that as soon as his wife's confinement was over she would regain her health, and had no thought save how to spare her as far as possible till that happy time should come. In the mornings she was generally better, as long, that is to say, as Ernest remained at home. But he had to go out buying 
and on his return would generally find that she had had another attack as soon as he had left the house. At times she would laugh and cry for half an hour together. At others she would lie in a semi-comatose state upon the bed, and when he came back he would find that the shop had been neglected, and all the work of the household left undone. Still, he took it for granted that this was all part of the usual course when women were going to become mothers, and when Ellen's share of the work settled down more and more upon his own shoulders, he did it all and drudged away without a murmur. Nevertheless, he began to feel in a vague way more as if he had felt an ashpit place, at Roughborough or at Battersby and to lose the buoyancy of spirits which had made another man of him during the first six months of his married life. It was not only that he had to do so much household work, for even the cooking, cleaning up slops, bed-making, and fire-lighting ere long devolved upon him, but his business no longer prospered. He could buy as hitherto, but Ellen seemed unable to sell, as she had sold at first. The fact was that she sold as well as ever, but kept back part of the proceeds in order to buy gin, and she did this more and more till even the unsuspecting Ernest ought to have seen that she was not telling the truth. When she sold better, that is to say when she did not think it safe to keep back more than a certain amount, she got money out of him on the plea that she had a longing for this or that, and that it would perhaps irreparably damage the baby if her longing was denied her. All seemed right, reasonable, and unavoidable. Nevertheless, Ernest saw that until the confinement was over, he was likely to have a hard time of it. All, however, would then come right again. End of chapter 74 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman